Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Public Procurement Podcast with me, Pedro Teles. For the 20th and last program of the series, we are doing something different. I have with me not one, but two persons in the virtual studio, Carlos Arrebola, a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, and Albert sanchez Grails from the University of Bristol. The purpose of our talk today is to probe and know more, a little bit more about Carlos' research into the influence of the Advocates General's opinion in subsequent decisions by the Court of Justice of the European Union. So Carlos and some of his colleagues put up a very interesting paper on SSRN, and Albert decided to critique it and, and provide some very helpful feedback. And that is mainly the reason why I'm bringing Albert back, because I want him to take the reins of the conversation today and effectively redo a little bit of his work, of his critique uh, that he did for the blog autocrackandnut.com. Notice the difference in the, um, in the URL. So welcome to the dark side, Albert, on, on that one. <laughs> Uh, Carlos and his colleagues rebuted the critique by Albert by guest posting in Albert's blog. And as such, uh, today's show is going to be slightly different from usual with me hosting the call more than anything else and Carlos and Albert hammering out their differences on a very uh, reasonable and sensible conversation with a cup of tea, a mug of tea or a cup of coffee as they prefer. Welcome to the Gent Show. Can you start by introducing yourself so that uh, we can match the voices to the names? Oh, thank you very much, Pedro. Um, I'm Carlos Arrevola. And I'm Albert Sanchez, and it's a pleasure to be in your show once again. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't finish without you, Albert. Um, I started with you, I had to finish with you as well. So it's great that we found out a, a way to do it. Part of kind, Pedro. I'm going to kick off the interview, I'm going to kick off the talk with the lowball question for, for Carlos. Carlos, could you summarize your research and what were the, the main findings, please? Yeah, so the research project that we devised was, as you said, about the influence of the Advocate General. And it's very interesting, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to sort of uh, give a bit more background information, because how this came about was by Julia, who is another PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, and me, we were talking about research methodologies. And we were asking ourselves, what is to do legal research, right? And comparing it with sort of other sciences. So out of an example, it came out like this claim that people say all the time that is, well, you know, the, the court follows the advocate general or the advocate general influences the court. And we were thinking, well, actually, has that been proven or is there any evidence for it? So that's how it came about. And then after doing a bit of literature review, we saw that, you know, many people do some sort of statistics about it, but there was no econometric study where like different variables are accounted to determine whether that's accurate or not. So we decided to do it and we we called another friend of mine also who was doing MPhil in economics at the time at Cambridge as well and asked him for some help in developing this model and testing whether the advocate general actually was causing, as in whether we could establish causality in its opinions towards the decisions of the court. So we did this. We put together a database out of 20 years of actions for Norman, and we came out with a response that was basically that, yes, there is, there is an influence. And the way we phrase it is... The influence is that if the advocate general asks the court to annul an act, the court will be 67% more likely to annul such act. And 
to be honest, we were expecting the results to show that the Advocate General was less influential than we thought, than those claims about the Advocate General suggest. So that's, that was a bit surprising. But yeah, in a nutshell, uh, to quote Albert's blog, uh, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what um, our research project was saying. Okay, Albert, you read the paper and what were your main, uh, main ideas or main uh, thinking lines about it? So I saw the paper on SSRN. I thought it was really interesting as, as a project. I think that definitely there is need to try to bring more econometric analysis to analysis of case law to see whether we can identify patterns. But, but being very interesting, it's also extremely complicated to do. So I, I tried to brush up my econometrics from when I studied the undergrad, which is certainly not yesterday. <laughs> and I looked at the model and, <laughs> you know, with, with the difficulty of, of trying to understand the model, I, I just, I thought that there was some basic underlying assumption that I was not really, I was not really buying it on first reading. So I started reading it a bit in more detail. And I think that the, the, the main issue is that we need to control in those models for, for noise or, or for factors that would explain what we're trying to, to measure for different reasons. And that's, that's a perspective from which I, I thought that some of the points that Carlos and, and his colleagues raised could be explored differently, particularly in terms of the tests that they run. But of course, that's something quite in the detail. So, it's, so maybe it's better for Carlos to, to go on and explain their, their claim and, and how they, they got there in specifics and then mm. maybe I can just pitch in when, when needed. <laughs> so Albert is definitely right. And that was the very first problem. When, we, when I approached my economist colleague, I said, how can we do this? And obviously, you have to put together a database of different variables, different factors that you're going to account that can explain why the code decide in a particular way, right? So to put it simply, we said, we're going to see if the code decides to annul or partially annul an act. And the reasons why the code or a particular judge may decide to annul an act are not necessarily related to the advocate general at all. There can be many reasons. And one of them is, well, because the law was very clear, it was ultra-virus or whatever it might be. So we had to, as I said, account for all those other things that had nothing to do with the advocate general. And we, we put together different variables. The one that we thought were simple enough or relevant enough to be put into a database. And we, so we chose something like, who was the claimant? Was the claimant an institution? Was the claimant a member state? Et cetera, et cetera. Also, who was the advocate general? Because we thought that maybe some advocate generals could be more influential than others. And so, yeah, we compile all, all, that, all that information. And of course, we left out many variables that affect the decisions. But there's nothing you can really do about it. You can always try and refine your model, but there will always be something that you left out. But then, and this was one of the main criticisms by Albert in his post, is that he was saying that that makes it not reliable. And we have to disagree a little bit here. Uh, we think that even if you leave out variables that are important and relevant for why the code decides in a particular way, your econometric model can be reliable. And that's, that would be going a bit farther into econometrics, but basically it's because your results are still statistically significant. 
And that's what happened in our model. We ran different models and we came out with one that seemed to be, according to several econometric measures, reliable enough as to present the results. Albert? Yeah, no, on, on, on that point, I guess that, that that's linked to the, the second of the criticisms I raised in the blog post. And basically, it's not so much leaving variables that, that could explain the decision of the court out. It's more about how the model is constructed in terms of which decisions the court can adopt. And this is a point yeah. that Carlos and his colleagues acknowledge in the paper. They say, well, it's, it's complex because the outcome in these procedures basically could be either to dismiss the claim or not admit it. And those would be negative results for the claimant. Or then they could be either partial or full annulment, which would be results that are positive for the claimant. And that's how they construct their variables. So basically, they give zero when the case is either not admitted or dismissed, and one when there is partial or total annulment. They explain quite well why partial and total annulment can be grouped together, because basically I think that they run tests and they see that there's no significant difference in the outcome. But my main concern is with grouping, lack of admissibility and dismissal on the grounds of substance, because basically from a legal point of view, yeah. it is not the same to say the case is not receivable by the court for very procedural reasons than to say it's been received, it's been assessed on the grounds of substance, and then we dismiss it. And it's not only that these are different steps, but it's also that the law that controls these two assessments are very different. I, I would claim that the rules controlling accessibility are much more limited and I would say more straightforward because they are about whether there is sufficient legal standing reasoning for... behind the claim, legal yeah. standing, yeah. timing. So they are easier, they are more accepted by the parties. And also, I think that usually the filter of, of admissibility tends to end on the case of a receiving the case and then discussing the ground. So so I, I, I would maybe separate those two because I think that maybe otherwise it, it's going to skew the results. Of course, I would need to rerun a model with this difference and I haven't had the time or maybe not even the skill at the moment to do it. But my impression is that those two should not be grouped together. And, and that's something that Carlos replied on, on, on the blog rebuttal by saying, well, but that's the way we did it. So I don't know, Carlos, do you have any further thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I think it gives me the opportunity now to clarify. I tried to do it in the, in the rebuttal post, but uh, it's a bit complex, so I try to keep it simple. Basically, yes, you're right that we group those things together, but the, our results are not saying anything about inadmissibility or dismissal. Because what we, we are only looking at opinions when the advocate general says uh, or suggests to annul. So we are not saying anything. Our claim or our final result or 67% more likely is not in the direction of negative opinions. It's only in the direction of positive opinions. So basically, when the advocate general suggests to annul, how does the court react to that? So basically, that's why... Our claim is that it doesn't make any difference that we group together in admissibility and dismissal. But there, there's something interesting there that you said is that, yeah, there are many other ways of looking at our model. And maybe one of those ways is looking at it in the negative, like what will happen if the advocate general suggested to dismiss a case? Is he followed to the same 
percentage in that case, but that would require fiddling a lot with our database. Then there's another problem, and this is why we broke total annulment with partial annulment, is that even we collected 20 years of data, when it comes to cases of partial annulment, you might have no more than 20. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure whether there are more than 20 or not, but they, I, I remember that there were a very limited number. That's difficult for econometrics because it means that your results are not going to be significant enough. So your claims cannot be reliable. So that basically, that's why we grouped them together. And maybe we're missing some sort of information there. But we thought that going towards the direction of annulment was something that could be grouped together. Yeah, no, I, I, as I said before, I, I agree with the direction of annulment. And particularly if you only have 20 observations or, or 20-something in 20 years, it's not going to be significant. But the issue on the model being only in one direction is the one that the third point I was, I was trying to raise in, in the blog post is that I think the big advantage that econometric studies of case law can have is if they allow for intuitions to be either proven or disproven. So in other words, whether the results can be understood without the model and would still make sense, or if they raise a counterintuitive point, if they, if they explain the counterintuitive point very well. At the beginning, your research, as you said, is basically about trying to give support to whether the Advocate General actually influences the court or not. Mm-hmm. So the research question is, what is the influence of the Advocate General? And I think that the results or the model would be much more credible or would convince the skeptics like myself if you could make the claim both ways. So if you could say it is not only that the Advocate General influences the court when it decides to suggest that something should be annulled, but also when it decides that something should not be annulled or even when it submits that it should be dismissed. Because in that case, you could not have the counter-explanation that the Court of Justice has, for instance, a pro-integrationist agenda, mm-hmm. in which case uh, it is more likely to annul on substance whenever there is any issue concerning restriction of freedoms, for instance. So I think that and that's why it's so difficult to build models. I think that maybe what we could agree is that you have developed half of the model mm-hmm. and, and that, and that for, for your claim to be solid, you would need to test it the other way around. Also, because... This is one of the problems with econometrics. We don't know what's going to come out. So if you were to say, well, the Advocate General influences the court when it suggests that it should annul, but it doesn't when it suggests that it should not annul, then I think that we will be conflating two issues, which is the pro-annulment, maybe bias of the court and the position of the Advocate General. Yeah, can I add something on there, which I think would be interesting, which is you just looked at the actions for annulment in one big batch. Am I correct, Carlos? Yeah, yeah. So what I would like to know is if the influence of the Advocate General actually changes depending on the formation of the court, i.e. the court can meet in many configurations from a bench of, what, five judges? Is that the smallest configuration, Albert? Yeah. Or, or three. Or three. Okay, yeah. So my question would be, does the influence of the Advocate General actually decreases as the complexity of the case increases? And, for example, if you have decisions that are taken by the Grand Chamber of Judges, does he have any influence at all? Yeah, so uh, coming to the the last question by Pedro, we did include the composition of the code that was okay. one of our variables. And to be honest, I I don't really remember. I'm scrolling through the paper to see if that if that saw us anything, because I don't want to summarize my own paper incorrectly. Sure. But uh, I think we came out with something like the Grand Chamber 
was a variable that could explain the decision of the code to a great degree, but I, I'm not completely sure that, that it was a very relevant variable. Having said that, I agree with Albert's critique that your model to be sustainable needs to work the other way around as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's something we most definitely agree that well, we've presented a project and the results, and obviously those have to be tested again and again to that's that's the basis of science isn't it like when you you make a claim and you it has to be an observation that can be done again and again by different tests and that's when the claim becomes accurate and valid and yes as i said i invite anyone and i'm glad albert is willing to get the database and and try and play with it a little bit and see what comes out. But I invite anyone who is listening to us, if they want the database, just have to drop us an email and and they can carry on with the study. Yeah, no, that's that's very generous. Um, I definitely plan to do that. I just need to find some time, which is going to be soon. Um, But (laughs) but I think that that brings me to the only other part that, that I found that, that the paper maybe could be strengthened or, or maybe was making a bit too much of a claim because the issue, Carlos, is that so you, you have your results and, and you're saying, well, the, the results need to be challenged, they need to be tested. But then in your discussion on the paper, which is which is quite interesting, of course, you you explore issues of judicial independence and, and reform of the Court of Justice, particularly yeah. on, on the role of the Advocate General. And I think that that's where I'm, I'm a bit skeptical about using econometrics that are not really rock solid. My, my impression is that on the basis of your finding, yeah. the arguments on judicial independence and reform of the Advocate General are a bit worrying because mm-hmm. there is no non-econometric consideration you take into account. So, so you don't really look at how would the influence of the Advocate General compare with, for instance, the, the influence of public prosecutors in criminal courts in domestic settings where there is also a similar role on trying to clarify the facts and the law. You don't really look at any other in international court to see if uh, amicus curiae briefings play similar roles. So I think that my, my only issue with your discussion is that maybe it tries to find too much support on your finding for discussions that are really far-fetched and then, then by reasons of space are quite limited in your paper. Mm-hmm. So from the methodological point of view, I would simply say it's good to keep the econometric papers in the econometrics and then maybe you know build longer, more considered papers on implications. Yeah, uh, that's a good, mm-hmm. good idea. Yeah, uh, and absolutely. Um, and we were very, or we tried to be very careful when drafting the discussion section. And uh, we started all by saying, if we upset our results in the previous sections, then these are the implications. And it, it was more rather than saying well this is what's happened that we need judicial reform we were saying well if this is true and we want people to sort of research a bit more and ourselves in the future then it has very important implications and that's why this paper should be taken seriously and also there's another comment which normally happens in academia we had two referees when we submitted the paper and we don't know who they are obviously but one of them was saying oh please be more bold about your claims in the discussion and the other one was saying i don't buy it like why are you saying all this so it was difficult to strike a balance but definitely our own intention was to be 
cautious in what we were saying and po just pointing out at the potential implications rather than saying, oh, this is what should happen. We don't expect the Court of Justice to call for a reform tomorrow and look at our paper and say, oh, actually, we have to change the role of the Advocate General. But, you know, those are things to consider towards the future. If I can jump in and, and, and make a comment there, I, I'm always reminded of um, a piece of advice I was given by my then PG supervisor, Professor Sue Aerosmith, that she said to me that far-fetched claims are where the um, good theses die in a viva. Hmm. So yeah. uh, we may have a very good piece of research and then we get carried away and start making uh, suggestions and uh, assumptions that are yet to be tested and are not entirely supported by our actual research. And as time goes on, I've came to appreciate her comment and, and, and the way that, um, that she put it. And I've seen that in a few vivas, students that were a little bit too ambitious then on the comments in the, in the conclusions or in the um, extrapolations of their research. And they were just ripped to shreds so to speak, in, um, mm. in in the Viva. So I agree with Albert on this one as well, which is it's probably better to build up the econometrics and then leave it standing as a, a piece of research on its own and then further down the line, take into consideration the wider implications of introducing changes to the court and including uh, future research that may or may not have similar uh, research methods. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, definitely. I I also agree, and um, and I thank the opportunity to highlight that we try to do it in the conditional, saying if we accept the um, the results that we put forward, rather than saying this is what should happen. But yeah, it, it sometimes it comes across like actually we are suggesting that there should be a judicial reform. So thank you for letting me clarify that. Okay, Albert, any further questions? No, I, I think that, I mean, overall, what, what I think is the only final thought I would have is that it, I think it's, it's commendable to, to see that young PhD researchers, well, first, they are interested in topics that are not within the core of their specific thesis, because uh, as far as I know, Carlos is not researching on this. No. <laughs> um, and I'm not very familiar with Julia's research, but I think she's not either looking at issues of, of court reform. So, so that's interesting for PhDs to know that you can have some side projects and that, that's going to improve the quality of your thesis as well, mm -hmm. uh, because it gives you brain space and, and you, know, you, you look at things with, with different views. And also that, that they are engaging in interdisciplinary and collaborative projects, which I think is where we are headed. So, so just to say, well done, in the setting of the of the study and and in, in pushing these trends forward, even if we may disagree on the outcome, but that's an ongoing discussion we can keep in future years. But it's something difficult to do, and and I think it should be appreciated that that you get engaged in these things. So well done to you and your colleagues. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot. And obviously, thank you for engaging with the debate. It obviously, as a young researcher. It comes as a surprise that people are really interested and engaged with your work. Uh, so uh, that was that was very positive to see. Um, farewell. I do have one one final question. What's next for you, Carlos? <laughs> What's next for me? Well, I'm I'm the moment. I'm very very busy, and in a way, I'm I'm happy that we submitted this paper, and that's one thing <laughs> one thing less to do. 
I'm trying to finish my PhD. I'm writing up. So as Alba says, nothing to do with the Advocate General or the court is on the European Economic Constitution. And it's a bit more broader and theoretical. And I'm also doing a GDL, a graduate diploma in law, because I'm, I'm heading to the city to be a solicitor, uh, hopefully in competition law. So that's it. And when I finish that after the summer, I'm planning to cycle across Europe <laughs> from Finland to Portugal. And it's a bit to raise awareness or to ask ourselves a bit more about the European Union identity, which I think is very is a very important topic right now in the UK especially. And I'm going to be recording all that in a YouTube channel that I have that is called Cycle Across the EU. Well, I, th- I think <laughs> it's not a bad way to um, to do it. Uh, I think it's quite interesting. Are, are you going to go through the UK or are you going to avoid the UK on the trip? I decided not to go through the UK and not to go through Belgium, basically because I already started making a lot of videos to put a bit of to give a bit of context to the trip, and all of those videos take place in the UK because it's my current place of residence. Uh, so I thought it's not really necessary to come back to the UK. And also, I decided not to go to Belgium because this year I'm going to I'm going to Belgium twice, and that's also going to be in the channel. So I thought it'd be a bit more interesting to to show some other places of the union, which will allow as well the audience from the UK to see those places. Okay, I think this is a, a very fitting way to end not only the program but also the series. Thank you, gentlemen, for for coming. Thank you, you, Pedro, and and congratulations on the series because I'm not sure you hear this regularly, but it's it's really, really interesting. So thank you for putting the project together and having these 20 podcasts. The only flaw, you know, you got me on the first and the last, so that's (laughs) that's the problem. (laughs) Sorry, Alvin, are are you saying that you should be in all of them? Is that what you're saying? No, no, I'm I'm saying probably I should just be in one hidden in the middle, but, you know, that's for the next series. Yeah, uh, I don't know yet if you're going to have a next series or not, so if you're listening to this and want to sponsor another 20 episodes of the Public Procurement Podcast, you know, just drop me a line. Where can we find you? So what, what's your online presences, guys? So for me, you can follow me on Twitter at A. Sanchez Graels or at How to Crack a Nut. The two is a number. Or in howtocrackanut.com, which is the new refurbished blog. And, and I hope to see you there. Yeah, and for me, it's mainly, uh, for academic purposes, mainly Twitter is at C. Arevola, uh, and that's with a B. And, um, well, if you want to follow the, the trip, is at EUCycle or also facebook.com slash EUCycle. You can find me at my blog, tells.eu, or on Twitter, where I use two handles, at Detic for general discussion and at Public Procure for public procurement-related topics. As ever, and for one, uh, one final time, I'm very grateful for the support of the British Academy Rising Star Engagement Awards, which made possible this project. Thank you.